This week, the CEO of OpenAI went to Congress and said, regulate us. But is the power of AI being overblown? Generative AI was compared to the first cell phone, the creation of the internet, the industrial revolution, the printing press, and the atomic bomb. From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. Also on the show, while the current writer's strike is ongoing, there are still myths that persist from the last one in 2007. Like the notion that the strike gave birth to reality TV. And what really bugs me about it is, all it takes to prove it's not true is Googling when Survivor debuted. It debuted in 2000. Plus, in the third and final part of our series on the embleepification of the internet, we go in search of possible solutions. We could just make this a rule. We could say, if you have some user's data and the user asks for the data, you got to give them the data. It's all coming up after this. This week, the CEO of OpenAI went to Congress and said, regulate us. But is the power of AI being overblown? Generative AI was compared to the first cell phone, the creation of the internet, the industrial revolution, the printing press, and the atomic bomb. From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. Also on the show, while the current writer's strike is ongoing, there are still myths that persist from the last one in 2007, like the notion that the strike gave birth to reality TV. And what really bugs me about it is, all it takes to prove it's not true is Googling Windsor Survivor debuted. It debuted in 2000. Plus, in the third and final part of our series on the embleepification of the internet, we go in search of possible solutions. We could just make this a rule. We could say, if you have some user's data and the user asks for the data, you got to give them the data. It's all coming up after this. From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. On Tuesday, Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, testified in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee about the dangers of artificial intelligence. The hearing opened with remarks from Senator Richard Blumenthal. We have seen how algorithmic biases can perpetuate discrimination and prejudice and how the lack of transparency can undermine public trust. This is not the future we want. But wait. If you were listening from home, you might have thought that voice was mine. But in fact, that voice was not mine. The audio was an AI voice cloning software trained on my floor speeches. The remarks were written by Chat GPT when it was asked how I would open this hearing. The stunt was somewhat underwhelming. But sure, point made about how good AI has gotten and the implications about where it might go. At the end of March, there was the open letter. It's been signed by more than a thousand artificial intelligence experts and tech leaders, past and present. The artificial intelligence experts are calling for a six-month pause in developing large-scale AI systems, citing fears of profound risks to humanity. And then, almost three weeks ago, Jeffrey Hinton, the so-called godfather of AI, who we'd interviewed on the show, left his job at Google, specifically so that he could blow the whistle and say, we should worry seriously about how we stop these things getting control over us. And it's going to be very hard. And I don't have the solutions. I wish I did. Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak also chimed in. It's going to be used by people, you know, for basically uh, really evil purposes. As did Microsoft founder Bill Gates. We're all scared that 
a bad guy could grab it. And OpenAI's Sam Altman basically said to Congress, regulate me. It is essential that powerful AI is developed with democratic values in mind, and this means that U.S. leadership is critical. Will O'Remus writes about technology and the digital world for The Washington Post. He says the vibe of Tuesday's session was worlds away from the ones where lawmakers rake social media execs over the coals. This was very different. This was more like some of those low-key hearings you don't end up reading much about in the news where they have some independent expert witnesses that are there to really educate them about an issue. That's how they were treating Sam Altman, who is the CEO of OpenAI. But what was his take? What was his demeanor? Was he the Cassandra of coders? He was there to issue warnings about how powerful this technology could be. My worst fears are that we cause significant, we, the field, the technology, the industry, cause significant harm to the world. I think if this technology goes wrong, it can go quite wrong. uh, And we want to be vocal about that. We want to work with the government to prevent that from happening. He was also there to present himself as an ally in making sure that the worst fears aren't realized. But here's the thing. Altman's the one who's building it. Yeah, I know. That is the thing. (laughs) No company has done more to push this particular form of AI. You can call it generative AI or large language models, foundational models. The stuff that underpins something like ChatGPT, they're the ones who released ChatGPT to the public and forced the hand of big companies like Google and Microsoft to respond with their own AI chatbots. What's he playing at here? Senator John Neely Kennedy, the Republican of Louisiana, even asked if Altman himself might be the one to oversee a federal regulatory body overseeing AI. Would you be qualified if we promulgated those rules to administer those rules? I love my current job. (laughs) Cool. Are there people out there that would be qualified? We'd be happy to send you recommendations for people out there, yes. That was kind of weird, no? Asking the fox to guard the hen house? Yeah, it raises the question of, is it still regulatory capture if you don't have to capture anything? They just (laughs) hand you the keys to the regulations. What were the ideas that were proposed? Broadly, there are two ways of thinking about the threats posed by this generation of AI. One way of thinking about it is the way that was prevalent at this hearing. It's that speculative, far-off What if AI gets too smart? How do we make sure that it doesn't go rogue and kill us all? And that's sometimes called AI safety. There is another framework, sometimes called AI ethics, that looks more at problems of how can AI tools be misused by humans or how could they deceive people? This hearing really focused more on the speculative harms and less on the questions like, What if companies start delegating decision-making to AI today and the AI makes bad decisions at a huge scale? And we don't know why, because it's a black box, because we don't know exactly how it works or, or what data it's been trained on. What if tons of people lose their jobs and then we realize it was all a big mistake or we realize that they've been replaced by these machines that have embedded really insidious biases? Another way of thinking about those two sets of concerns is, on the one hand, you're concerned that AI is going to get too smart. On the other hand, you're concerned that AI today is too dumb, for lack of a better word, that people are going to overestimate its intelligence and use it for things it's not really cut out for. Like what things? 
So, for instance, if you talk to a doctor about people using the internet for medical research, they'll right. laugh ruefully about Dr. Google. Yeah, the University of Google. Yeah. Right, and it's not always the most reliable information. That said, you know, when I Google my symptoms, I, I know that there are certain sites that are maybe more reliable than others, and I can go to those, and I can take it with a grain of salt because I know whose site I'm on. Now, think about how Google and Microsoft want to build chatbots like ChatGPT into their search engines. In fact, they're already doing it. What about when people start asking medical questions to a chatbot? What data was that trained on? Was that trained on WebMD or was that trained on some conspiracy quacks blog? We don't know. So the ideas that came up for regulating this nascent industry included things like licensing AI models, scoring them on certain benchmarks, ensuring that the AI is identified as AI and can't pose as humans. Did you see anything in this that could address some of these short-term, immediate, present concerns? There were a lot of ideas floated. Some of them, I think, do address some of the shorter-term issues. There were some calls for the AI companies to not train their models on the copyrighted works of artists without those artists' consent. Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee, representing the Nashville country music industry, wanted to know, can you train your model on Garth Brooks's music and then have a program that can make songs that sound just like Garth Brooks, but he doesn't get any royalties? Altman kind of downplayed that concern, but... What he didn't say was, they've already done it. I mean, they've already <laughs> trained their models on copyrighted works without consent. There is no unbaking that bread. It's in there. Even though the headlines from this hearing were, well, Sam Altman is inviting regulation, there are certain types of regulation he was definitely not inviting, and that was one of them. Another one was, one of the expert witnesses was Gary Marcus, a professor at NYU who's been a longtime observer and expert on AI. He repeatedly said, we need some transparency about what are the data sources for these models so that we can even begin to research what the biases might be. That is something that OpenAI does not support and that Altman sort of sidestepped in the hearing. And then one other line of regulatory attack on these AI models would be around liability. When an AI, when a chatbot says something that turns out to lead to harm, Maybe an AI could give bad medical or financial advice that leads to someone's ruin or even death. Will the AI companies be held responsible for that? Altman doesn't think that the AI companies should be held liable if their models steer somebody wrong. Altman says, regulate me, you know, I'm making something dangerous. But there were things that he doesn't want the government's help on, things that would be problematic for the way that OpenAI is doing business. The headline from this hearing was that, here's Sam Altman warning that AI could cause great harm to society. That's pretty catchy. I think it would be foolish to sit here and say, six months after ChatGPT came out, that there couldn't be serious harms from a super smart AI someday. Now you have Stephen Hawking being terrified of it before he dies. Yeah, but the more you focus on how smart AI could be someday, the less you focus on all the ways it falls short today. And that's crucial because we're in a moment when almost every industry is looking for how can we make use of AI? How can we show our investors that we're at the forefront? Could we weather this difficult financial period by 
laying off humans and putting AI in charge of some things. We're already seeing media companies doing that. I've talked to BuzzFeed and I've talked to CNET and its parent Red Ventures, and they say, well, yes, we're investing heavily in AI and we're going to let AI write articles now. And, and yes, also we disbanded BuzzFeed News and laid off all the reporters and we did layoffs at CNET of humans, but those two are entirely unrelated. Nobody's coming out and saying we're firing humans and replacing them with AI. But if you connect the dots, it is already happening. This hearing really is one of the best AI marketing campaigns ever. Right. If you're Sam Altman and you get a whole press cycle that says, first of all, my technology is so powerful that it could destroy the world. And second of all, like, I'm here to help regulate me and I'll do whatever I can to prevent that from happening. That's kind of a hero pose for him. It's worth noting that they did not include some of the people who first brought the warnings about large language models to the public's attention. A few years ago, there was a big hubbub around Google's ethical AI team. And it stemmed from a research paper that members of that team had co-authored. They warned of everything from the impacts on the climate, from building ever bigger models that require ever more computing power and energy to run. They warned about the biases built into the data that these models were being trained on. And Google wouldn't let them publish that paper those people are still very active as critics of AI, but they were not invited to be part of this hearing. Instead, you got the industry folks who were asked to come in and inform lawmakers about what the harms might be. What sort of lens should the concerned media consumer put on this story and the coverage of it? I would just say to consumers of the news, be wary of the hero narrative. Be wary of the idea that this guy who's building the leading AI systems is also the guy to save us from them. There are many other voices out there with different things to say than Altman about the risks posed by AI. I think it's really important that those voices get heard and, and listened to when they speak up. We need to be aware of its limitations in order to have any hope of using it for good. Will, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Will Oremus writes about the ideas, products, and power struggles shaping the digital world for The Washington Post. Coming up, the writers are restless. This is On the Media. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. On Tuesday, we entered the third week of one of the largest entertainment strikes in recent years. This is the first time in 15 years that TV writers are on strike. They say that they're calling for fairer contracts after not being able to reach an agreement on negotiations last night. They're also looking to the future and hoping to stave off an industry takeover by artificial intelligence and chatbots. The action by the Writers Guild of America has closed down shows from Abbott Elementary to SNL to The Tonight Show, many others, and big names join the little ones on the picket line. Tina Fey, Seth Meyers, Rob Lowe, Jason Sudeikis, and a very impassioned Mandy Patinkin. You guys who make millions and millions of dollars, for God's sake, without the writers, we're nothing. They create the stories that make our hearts beat. Those writers have definitely shown their skills over the course of the strike. Hollywood writers now pinning one-liners on picket signs. A fair offer they apparently can't refuse. Jokes are hard. Paying us is easy. Not to mention a staff favorite. 
Without writers, Logan Roy would be alive. At the heart of the strike are concerns about the risks to writer pay and career development posed by the rise of streaming. For instance, streamers don't pay writers residuals. The cut of cash they'd normally get each time their show was rerun on TV, now they're more likely to be paid just for the number of days they work on any given show. And streaming shows often have shorter seasons. But while streaming is new-ish, the fundamentals behind the strike are perennial. For 15 years, Emily St. James covered TV at such outlets as Vox and the AV Club, including the 100-day 2007 writer's strike. Now she's a TV writer herself. Yes, yes, yes. I, I feel very strange saying I am a TV writer when I worked one day in that job and immediately went on strike. We spoke to Emily fresh from the picket line about some of the less-than-true notions she's seen in the coverage about this strike and the last one. For instance, the notion that the 2007 strike supercharged the growth of reality TV. All it takes to prove it's not true is Googling when Survivor debuted. It debuted in 2000. 39 days, 16 people, one Survivor. Survivor is generally noted as the dawn of reality competition TV. It's not the first example of it, but it's the first really huge hit that American TV had. And of course, from there, we have all sorts of copycats and we have shows like American Idol and shows like The Bachelor. And all of those shows debuted before 2005. The strike is in 2007. When you get to the top 30 TV shows of the 2007-2008 season, which is the one affected by the strike, Yes, the top five shows are all reality. They're the two installments of American Idol and the three installments of Dancing with the Stars each week. But those were the top five shows for like the TV season before and the TV season after. If you look at the rest of that top 30 list, you see all kinds of scripted shows. You see Grey's Anatomy and Lost and Desperate Housewives and CSI and NCIS and etc. These networks were not canceling scripted programming to make reality shows. Well, how about the collapse of civilization as we know it? <laughs> By which I mean the lasting influence of the 08 strike on The Apprentice. You've been lazy, you've been nothing but trouble, and now you cut them off as they're fighting each other for who should be fired. Michael, Michael, yes, sir. You're fired. The story goes that the Donald Trump vehicle, which debuted in 2004, was saved from cancellation by the 2007-2008 strike, thus allowing Trump to continue having a primetime platform that would lead him to the presidency. We can debate all day long the role of The Apprentice in Trump's ascent to the presidency. Um, I think there are valid cases on both sides. He was a New York schnorrer before he became (laughs) an international sensation. I think that what is not accurate is that The Apprentice was saved from cancellation by the strike. What happened was in May 2007, it was not on NBC's fall schedule. And everyone was like, does that mean The Apprentice is canceled? Because its ratings had been slumping to that point after being an enormous hit for its first two seasons. But at the time, the NBC brass were very clear that, no, we're just trying to work out a new deal with Trump and with Mark Burnett, who's the producer of that show. They eventually did within a few weeks, and they went into production on the first season of what became The Celebrity Apprentice that Mm -hmm. summer. 
And for whatever reason, whether it's because it did debut in that strike period when there wasn't a lot else on, or because it had celebrities, its ratings did go up a little bit, and then it very quickly fell off. I do not think Donald Trump is president because there was a writer's strike. I think that's way too many butterflies causing hurricanes. <laughs> like, <laughs> But it is true that The Celebrity Apprentice debuted in the middle of that strike period. So why does the idea of a reality TV boom in the last strike persist? You know, we jokingly <laughs> talked about the collapse of civilization a few minutes ago, but like you really would look at writing about reality television in the 2000s and people would write about it as though it was just this extreme pernicious evil. And one of the things about unscripted programming, whether you're looking at the TV or film world, is it's always been there. One of the first big hits was the $64,000 question. I was thinking more candid camera. Sure. Yeah. Candid cameras one, you know, queen for a day. This is your life. Oh, all God. of these shows that are like playing off like, yeah, they're very different from the reality shows we have today, but they are unscripted programming of the time. And they were actually written about in similar ways. You can, during the game show craze of the fifties, you can find all sorts of TV criticism that is like, these shows are just going to be the end of all of us. It's a way that people have always thought about this kind of programming. So let's talk about the impact of the strike. I was thinking of the 2007 strike when the life of Jesse Pinkman was saved. <laughs> The beloved series Breaking Bad, Brian Cranston as the chemistry teacher who becomes a drug kingpin. The strike happened, and if you've always wondered why are there only seven episodes of Breaking Bad season one, that's why. Now, originally, season one was supposed to end with the death of Jesse Pinkman, played by Aaron Paul a moment that underlined the consequences of Walter White's choice to start cooking meth. But the writers had come to really kind of like his performance. And so as they were on strike, Vince Gilligan, a few of them sort of started thinking about, do we really need to kill this guy? And if you've watched all five seasons of Breaking Bad, it is impossible to imagine that show without <laughs> Jesse. He is that show's soul in so many ways. I am not turning down the money. I am turning down you. Ever since I met you, everything I have ever cared about is gone. And yet, if the strike hadn't happened, he would have died. So <laughs> I think creative people continue to be creative even when they are not working on these shows actively. So creative people are going to come out of this strike with ideas that will make some of your favorite shows even better. How many Jesse Pinkmans <laughs> will be saved because of this strike? You've said that every time there's a strike, it's really about new technology. Every innovation seems to shortchange the writers. And you found that this goes all the way back to the writer's strike of 1960. The writer's strike of 1960 was predominantly designed to get screenwriters some sort of residuals for movies that were made before sort of the dawn of television. So movies from before 1948. And the Writers Guild eventually did win that after a long bruising strike. And that is just sort of the basis of every strike uh, thereafter. There's always some new technology that's coming in that is not strictly covered by the previous agreements made by these unions. And then studios are trying to sort of find a way to find loopholes because of the new technology. And then a strike is usually about closing those loopholes up. 
So in the 1980s, it was about VHS. There was also what happens when something is aired on cable. In the 2000s, there's so much of it is about DVD and DVR. Every single person in Hollywood is affected when these new technologies come in. So the technology people are worried about is technology that's been around for about 20 years. That's streaming. It's also about AI, right? Yes. As my friend Alyssa Wilkinson, my former colleague at Vox, has pointed out, the fear is less that an AI can be better than a writer because everybody sort of acknowledges that's not true. The fear is that an AI could write something just good enough that like enough audiences would fall for it. Again, I have a lot Mm -hmm. of faith in TV audiences. I don't think that would happen a decade from now. Maybe there's a lot of stuff that is cheaply generated by AI, and that's one of the reasons the Writers Guild is striking around this issue. But the point is that if AI gets used, no matter how it gets used, the union is asking for some boundaries. Yeah. Basically, the idea is that like, if you are going to use AI as a tool, it is there to supplement or bolster. It is not there to create. There is a world in which AI becomes a tool that can be helpful. It's the question of making it the tool rather than the thing that is generating from the first. You say that people have expected this strike for about three years. But I guess you could assume, given that the strike was anticipated, that the networks and streaming services were prepared? Yeah, probably someone like Netflix has stuff banked up. But eventually there's going to come a point where they're going to realize, oh, this is not going to continue past this point because production has shut down. Now, Netflix has a lot of international production. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the next season of Squid Game proceeds apace, presumably. So that is a wrinkle this time around that wasn't there in 2007. But You're already seeing late-night shows are not airing. Probably in the fall, some of the big shows are going to be delayed. When Stranger Things finally comes back, those kids are all (laughs) going to be like on pension plans. There is sort of this looming deadline. June 30th is the expiration of the contracts that AMPTP, the group that represents all of these studios, has with the DGA, the Directors Guild, and SAG, the Screen Actors Guild. Mm-hmm. And there is an equal amount of irritation and frustration and anger among members of those guilds. Now, will that result in a strike? That is hard to say. The Writers Guild has historically been the union that is most likely to go on strike. But I would be very intrigued to see what happens if all three of the major creative unions go on strike. Don't you think that the coverage of strikes has been a lot more positive in recent years than in years past? You look at polling for how positively Americans feel about labor unions, and it's at its highest rate since 1965. I know some people are irritated a little bit in the sort of working man's hero narrative that the WGA sometimes strikes. But the fact is that since the pandemic and the attention of the American public, however briefly, on the role of essential workers in our lives has had an impact on the perception of work in general and on inequality. Yeah, I think there has never been a period in American history when people have been more aware of the idea that a small number of people have a disproportionate amount of the wealth, and everyone can see the way that that affects whatever industry they're in, regardless of that industry. The work that I do is not a blue-collar job. It is very, very white-collar, but it's a similar situation. 
where I am getting paid what is ultimately a pittance compared to what is being made by the mm-hmm. people who are my vast, enormous corporate overlords. And that was true when I was at Vox. That was true when I was at uh, the AV Club before that. Mm-hmm. I think it is a situation that has united a lot of people who traditionally maybe would not have been united. It's been fascinating to watch that sort of solidarity develop among the various groups who do very different things here. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Emily St. James is a former TV critic turned TV writer. For one day. For a day. Her latest article for Vanity Fair was called, Can We Really Blame Trump in the Reality Boom on the 2007 Writer's Strike? Coming up, the third and final part of our exploration with Cory Doctorow into why Big Digital has gone to the dogs. This is On The Media. This is On The Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone with the third and final part of our discussion with the great Cory Doctorow, journalist and novelist and special advisor to the Electronic Frontier Foundation, about the process whereby big platforms go bad, a phenomenon he calls enshittification. In part one, we went through the three steps taken by big digital platforms like Facebook, Amazon, TikTok, and Twitter to get richer and get worse. One, lose money to win customers. Two, benefit big suppliers and squeeze the small ones. And three, squeeze everyone but the shareholders, making everyone miserable but not too miserable to leave. In part two, we discussed how and why this happens and whether big digital is maybe just different from other earlier monopolies. This is the solution section, both uplifting and deeply problematic. The problem, for instance, of passing common sense regulation, which is hobbled by confusion over how the internet works, abetted by platform designers, and also by the fact that those designers are rich and thus effective lobbyists. It's not that they're rich. It's that they're rich and united. A crucial distinction. One only has to look back on the early days of this century. Tech at the time was like 150 squabbling, small and medium-sized companies that all hated each other's guts and were fighting like crazy. And so lawmakers heard contradictory messages from tech. And so the consolidation of tech into what Tom Eastman calls five giant websites filled with screenshots of text from the other four, that produced a kind of common playbook, right? And so now we get a lot of tech laws that are very bad that tech has pushed for because tech is able to sing with one voice. And Congress offers bad solutions because they don't get the internet? The internet is not something that you just dump something on. It's not a big truck. It's it's a series of tubes. And if they're filled, when you put your message in, it gets in line. So you don't have to get the technology in depth to be able to make good policy. And the last time I checked, there weren't any microbiologists in Congress, and yet we're not all dead from drinking our tap water. What you need to be able to do is hold a hearing in which the truth emerges from a truth-seeking exercise where adversarial entities counter one another's claims, and an expert regulator who isn't captured by industry is able to evaluate those claims. Like, that's that's how you get good rules. So instead, we end up with regulations that are simply unworkable? Since the 1990s, every couple of years, like a bad penny, someone proposes that we should make cryptography that works when criminals and foreign spies and stalkers are trying to break into it, but doesn't work when police officers are trying to break into it. 
or our own spies. So Bill Clinton had something called the Clipper Chip. Right now in the UK, there's a proposal about this for instant messaging. It happens all over the world. Okay, so I'm not an expert. It sounds to me like if you're going to try and create an encryption system that will protect you from crooks, but not from each other, you're not going to get an encryption system. Nailed it right there on the head (laughs) in one. And, you know, we have a name for what lawmakers do when we point this out. They say, nerd harder. We have so much confidence in your incredible genius as a sector. Surely, all you need to do is apply yourself. Sometimes they're right. Sometimes there's a, a kind of dazzling act that goes on from tech where they say, this is impossible. And what they mean is we'd rather not do it. And that would be things like, can you have a search engine that doesn't spy on you? And they're, they're <laughs> like, that's like having water that's not wet. Which brings us to the first of Dr. O's three prime solutions to identification: fixing the problem of user privacy. Platform designers say their services can't run without using our data. They rarely say how or why. Why not begin the fix by returning to a form of advertising we had two decades ago, ads based on context rather than behavior? Let's start with how a behavioral ad works. You land on a web page, and there's a process where the web page, the publisher, takes all the information they have about you that they've gathered through this ad tech surveillance system. Which includes what? Everything you've bought, everywhere you've gone, everything you've looked at, all the people you know, your age, your demographics, your address, everything. And so they say, I have here one Brooke Gladstone, NPR host and proud New Yorker, who last week was thinking about buying an air conditioner for her apartment. And they say, what am I bid for this Brooke Gladstone? And that goes off to one of these ad tech platforms. And the ad tech platform asks the advertisers, the buy side platform, they say, who among you will pay me for Brooke Gladstone? And there's a little auction that takes place. If you've ever noticed that the page lags when you're loading it, that's the surveillance lag, right? That's the auctions, dozens of them taking place at once. What? How do I not know this? Yeah, it's (laughs) terrible, right? This is why pages are... Bandwidth gets faster, pages get slower, and it's the surveillance lag that's doing it. All this busy marketplace stuff happening in the background. Even if an ad company fails to win your behavioral ad auction, the process still gives them a lot of insight into your behavior. Whereas with context ads, they mostly have access to what's relevant and obvious. You are reading an article about the great outdoors. And they look at your IP address and they go, this is someone in New York. They say that you're using an iPhone. So it's someone who has $1,000 to buy a phone. And they say to the marketplace, who wants to advertise to someone in New York who's reading about the great outdoors? And the same thing happens and you get an ad. But the ad is not about you. It's about what you're reading. So the advertiser will know what the publisher of the article knows, not your Google searches or your health concerns or what's in your email address book. So if Congress says, we're going to pass a comprehensive privacy law, the industry would have to respond with context ads. So that's one potential privacy fix, but we need more than that. The legislative focus seems to be on children's privacy. Do we have a model in the Child Online Protection Act? We could if we ever bothered to enforce it. COPPA says that you can't gather data on people who are under 13. 
And if you recall when poor Shuchu, the CEO of TikTok, was being grilled by Congress, there was a congressman from Georgia who was just like weirdly horny for whether or not pupils were being measured. Can you say with 100% certainty that TikTok does not use the phone's camera to determine whether the content that elicits a pupil dilation should be amplified by the algorithm? Can you tell me that? We do not collect body, face, or voice data to identify our users. The only face data that you will get that we collect is when you use the filters to have, say, sunglasses on your face, we need to know where your eyes are. And Why do you need to know what the eyes are if you're not seeing if they're dilated? And, and that data is stored on your local device and deleted after use if you use it for facial. Again, we do not collect body, face, or voice data to identify our users. I find that hard to believe. It's our understanding that they're looking at the eyes. How do you determine what age they are then? Um, we rely on age gating as our key age assurance. Age gating, which is when you ask the user what age they are. We have also developed some tools where we look at their public profile to go through the videos that they post to see whether... Well, that's creepy. Tell me more about that. It's public. So and he's just baffled. And, you know, as he should be. And rather than the congressman from Georgia saying, wait, this is what everybody does? That's terrible. He says, we're not here to talk about your American competitors. We are here to talk about what you're doing for Xi Jinping. But you know what? They're all doing that. So Congress has settled on another unsatisfying measure. The Child Protection Act doesn't really do anything. Does it? I mean, can anyone with a straight face look at Congress's legislative intent in passing a rule? On the one hand, they pretty definitely don't mean measure people's pupils and do some kind of digital phrenology to figure out if they're over 13. And on the other hand, they didn't mean give everyone a box that says I'm over 13. I mean, there's another way of thinking about this, which is to say... Don't spy on anyone in case they might be under 13. Uh, so Congress is reaching back for some old school antitrust-style legislation. Mike Lee has got a bill right now that both Elizabeth Warren and Ted Cruz have sponsored. And it says that, at a minimum, the ad tech business should be broken up so that you can be a company that provides a marketplace where people buy and sell ads, or you can be a company that represents publishers in that marketplace, or you can be a company that represents advertisers in that marketplace, but you cannot, in the mode of Google and Meta, be a company that is the marketplace, that represents the buyers, and represents the sellers. And somehow, even though you claim that this is a very clean arrangement, somehow the share of money going to publishers keeps going down, the cost to advertisers keeps going up, and your margins keep increasing. So we could say that you can have a platform or you can use the platform. But mm -hmm. if you own a platform, you can't own one of the teams. Facebook vowed not to spy on us when it started on its road of broken promises. But now the big platforms claim that reigning in privacy would break the Internet. They say the same thing about taking step two in Dr. O's program to pull big media from the dung heap. Step two is interoperability. Consider this. Okay, when you buy a pair of shoes, you can wear anyone's socks with them. When you buy a car, you can plug any charger into the cigarette lighter. And in theory, when you buy an iPhone, you could run anyone's software on it. In fact, it is much easier to do that with an iPhone than with a car cigarette lighter. There is this <laughs> kind of latent computer science bedrock idea that is very important, but esoteric. I apologize in advance called Turing Completeness, named for Alan Turing, the great hero mm -hmm. of computer science. And Turing Completeness 
it says that the only computer we know how to make is the one that can run all the programs we know how to write. And so you could hypothetically write a program that would allow you to install a different operating system on your iPhone or a different app store on your iPhone. And it's not the technical challenge alone that stops it. The real thing that prevents it is that if you tried it, Apple would destroy you with lawsuits. <laughs> They'll drum up a thousand excuses that, you know, today we call IP, which colloquially just means anything that allows me to control the conduct of my competitors, my critics, or my customers. Of course, in fairness to Big Digital, they're not alone here. I mean, if you buy a John Deere tractor, only John Deere can fix it. I mean, literally. Yeah, it's a thing they do called VIN locking. VIN is vehicle identification number. Computers are now so cheap that they can put a little microchip in every part. And after you install the part, the microchip asks the central computer in the engine, do you know who I am? <laughs> and if the central computer in the engine says, no, I've never seen you before, you're a new part, it says, well, I'm just not going to work until the manufacturer sends an unlock code. And so what that means is that if you're a farmer with your like half million dollar piece of heavy farm equipment that you paid for with your money that you need to bring in the crops before the hailstorm comes and destroys them, and you swap in the new part as farmers have done since tractors began and since plows began... Your tractor says, no, you've got to pay a John Deere technician a couple hundred bucks to show up and just type an unlock code. They got rid of that, right? They keep making feints towards it. What they've never said, and what I don't think you'll ever hear them say, is that if you want to just bypass the thing that makes sure that a John Deere technician has overseen the repair, that's your right. They're never going to say that. They are going to continue to claim that even though it's your property, that the manufacturer's cold, dead hand rests upon it, and that your use of your property is forever subject to their whim. And if they decide to be generous with you, that's fine. But as Darth Vader says in his MBA course, I've altered the deal. Pray that I do not alter it further. So John Deere is doing what Big Digital does, interposing itself between the customers and their purchased products, creating uncertainty by turning knobs, by... What I call twiddling. Twiddling is the ability to change the business rules very quickly. And there are no real policy constraints on twiddling. And Corey says three factors gave rise to the new world of big digital and made injectification inevitable. The first is no competition. For 40 years, we let these companies buy their competitors. We let them do predatory pricing. We let them violate the antitrust law that was on the books because Ronald Reagan said that we shouldn't enforce it the way it was written. And all of his successors, until Biden, said, that sounds like a good idea to me, too. So on the one hand, there's just nowhere else to go. Then you have digital is different. The platforms can play this high-speed shell game because there's no rules on how they can change the rules. There's no rules on how they can alter your experience or harvest your data or do other things that are bad for you. And then finally, we can't use the intrinsic property of computers, this universality, this Turing completeness, to step in where Congress has failed and put limits on their twiddling ourselves by changing the technology so it's twiddle-resistant. So that when they try to spy on us, our computer says, I'm sorry, no, I belong to Brooke, not Mark Zuckerberg. And even though you've requested that private data, I am not going to furnish you with it. 
So, no competition and unbridled twiddling are the first two factors kettling users. The third taps into feelings many of you have had. You can't stay, but you can't go. Because if you do, you leave your community behind, your history. You can't take it with you. And reestablish the connection with them. There's no right to exit. Though some companies have tried to make it possible... A company called Power Ventures. If you just told it your Facebook login and your logins for all the other services you used, it would put them all into one inbox that you could manage centrally. So you could send LinkedIn messages and Twitter messages and Facebook. And you wouldn't do it in a way that would allow them to surveil you. Like they could see the message, but they couldn't see all the things you did leading up to the message and leaving it and so on. It was a great tool. And Facebook argued that it violated the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Facebook gives you this kind of Sophie's choice where either you go and you do what's best for Brooke, the individual, or you do what's best for Brooke, the member of a community. Mm -hmm. Because if you leave, you leave the community behind. Now, we could just make this a rule. We could say, as we do with most data protection regimes like the California Privacy Act, like the European General Data Protection Regulation and so on, we could say... If you have some user's data and the user asks for the data, you got to give them the data. And then we could say to a company like Twitter that is just cruising for a bruising from consumer protection agencies and is probably going to be operating under a new consent decree, hey, your consent decree, now that you've abused your users, is you've got to support this standard so that users can leave but continue to send messages to Twitter. And they can take their followers with them if they leave. And they can take their followees with them when they leave. So to recap, to reverse the degradation of our online experience, we wrest some control of our privacy by insisting on ads that collect only context rather than every known morsel of information about our earthly lives. Then sue for interoperability, the right to use what we own from books to tractors and slap away the seller's cold dead hand. Finally, we lay claim to our right to exit. The simple idea that signing out of social programs should be as easy as signing up. All these would take lots of public pressure, but all are possible. In fact, they were normal parts of our online experience, all of them, before being thrown on the dung heap with mission statements vowing to give people the power to build community, protect the user's voice, and not be evil. Big Digital's current mission statement should be, it gets worse before it gets worse. I wonder, has anyone ever stopped the process in its tracks? Have users ever rebelled before a platform or a service went south? Well, I've got some good news for you, Brooke, which is that podcasting has thus far been very identification resistant. Really? Yeah, it's pretty cool. So podcasting is built on RSS, I know that. It stands for really simple syndication that lets pretty much anyone upload content to the internet that can be downloaded by anyone else. The creators of RSS were very aware of how platforms could lock in users and built their tech to combat that. And in turn, podcasts are extremely hard to centralize. Which isn't to say that people aren't trying. Like Apple. Oh my goodness, do they ever. YouTube, Spotify gave Joe Rogan $100 million (laughs) to lock his podcast inside their app. And the thing about that is that once you control the app that the podcast is in, you can do all kinds of things to the user, like you can spy on them. You can stop them from skipping ads. 
So the BBC, for a couple of decades, has been caught in this existential fight over whether it's going to remain publicly funded through the license fee or whether it's going to have to become privatized. And it does have this private arm that Americans are very familiar with, BBC Worldwide and BBC America, which basically figure out how to extract cash from Americans to kind of help subsidize the business of providing education, information, and entertainment to the British public. So the BBC created a podcast app called BBC Sounds. That's right. Mm-hmm. So one of my favorite BBC shows of all time is The News Quiz. Welcome to The News Quiz. Uh, it's been a week in which the Culture Secretary suggested the BBC needs to look at new sources of funding, so all of this week's panellists will be for sale on eBay after the show. <laughs> and you can listen to it as a podcast on a four-week delay. <laughs> so you can hear comedians making jokes about the news of the week a month ago. Or you can get it on BBC Sounds. And from what I'm told by my contacts at the Beeb, people aren't rushing to listen to BBC Sounds. Instead, they're going, you know, there is so much podcast material available, more than I could ever listen to. I'll just find something else. And that's what happened with Spotify, too. Spotify paid big bucks, like hundreds of millions of dollars, to buy out production houses and big creators like Alex Cooper and Joe Rogan in an attempt to build digital walls around their conquest's popular shows, just to see their hard-won audiences say, hmm, I'll pass. And now, you know, Spotify is making all those pronouncements, you know, we're going to, on a select basis, move some podcasts outside for this reason and that. And basically what's happening is they're just trying to save face as they gradually just put all the podcasts back where they belong on the internet instead of inside their walled garden. Maybe it's because of the abundance of content. Or because, like the news business, people are used to getting it for free. Podcasting seems resistant, even though no medium is safe from what Dr. O is describing. In Identification sits at the intersection of some of our country's most powerful players, entrenched capitalist values, and the consumer's true wants and needs. So how do you see our future? I have hope, which is much better than optimism. Hope is the belief that if we materially alter our circumstance, even in some small way, that we might ascend to a new vantage point from which we can see some new course of action that was not visible to us before we took that last step. I'm a novelist and an activist, and I can tell the difference between (laughs) plotting a novel and running an activist campaign. In a novel, there's a very neat path from A to Z. In the real world, it's messy. But in the real world, you can have this rule of thumb that says, wherever you find yourself, see if you can make things better, and then see if from there we can stage another climb up the slope towards the world that we want. I got a lot of hope pinned on the Digital Markets Act. I got a lot of hope pinned on Lena Khan and the the Federal Trade Commission's antitrust actions, the Department of Justice antitrust actions, the Digital Markets Act in the European Union, the Chinese Cyberspace Act, the Competition and Markets Authority in the UK stopping Microsoft from doing its rotten acquisition of Activision. I got a lot of hope for people who are fed up to the back teeth with people like Elon Musk and all these other self-described geniuses and telling them all to just go to hell. I got a lot of hope. Thank you for taking me on this journey with you. I am inspired. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for coming on it. Journalist, activist, novelist, Cory Doctorow. 
His most recent novel is called Red Team Blues. On the Media is produced by Micah Lowinger, Eloise Blondio, Molly Schwartz, Rebecca Clark Callender, Candice Wong, and Suzanne Gaber. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineer this week was Andrew Nerviano. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Brooke Gladstone.